Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Janice Kwan, a general internist at Mount Sinai Hospital. Hey Janice, how are you? Good, Amol. Pleasure to be here. It's a, a joy to have you as always. So as usual, we're thrilled to be hosted online at healthydebate.ca. And as always, we invite you to subscribe to us in iTunes and please uh, leave a comment or a rating. It really helps us out very much. Today, Janice and I are going to be talking about two studies. Janice is going to talk to us about transcatheter aortic valve replacement, TAVR or TAVI as we more colloquially call it. And then I'm going to be talking about uh, something a little unorthodox. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the influence of the sugar industry on research priority setting in the 1970s. And as obscure as that may seem, uh, trust me, it's a great story with a lot of relevance. Uh, so two very uh, different and hopefully interesting topics today. So Janice, why don't you kick us off? Before we start talking about TAVIs, why don't you begin with a clinical pearl, two minutes on aortic stenosis. All right. So as we know, aortic stenosis is the most common valvular disease worldwide, and its prevalence increases with age, whereby approximately 10% of those over the age of 80 actually have aortic stenosis. Uh, the most common cause worldwide is not surprisingly rheumatic heart disease, but in the Western world, so North America, Europe, uh, calcific heart disease, which increases with age, as well as congenital bicuspid valve disease are the most common causes. Early on, as it progresses, the disease is actually asymptomatic. However, once patients become symptomatic, they develop symptoms, and the mnemonic I commonly use is SAD, so SAD face, um, S for syncope, A for angina, D for dyspnea. Uh, once patients develop these so-called SAD symptoms, it really portends a poor prognosis for them, and that's because symptoms rarely occur until the disease is severe. Um, echocardiographically, it's defined as either having an aortic valve area less than one centimeter squared, a jet velocity greater than four meters per second, and or a mean transvalvular gradient greater than 40 millimeters of mercury. And historically, surgical aortic valve replacement was the gold standard of care for individuals who developed symptoms. Um, if you weren't eligible for surgery, then really it was just the natural history and progression of the disease, and it really was highly morbid. Okay. I won't lie. I had some mildly traumatic flashbacks to Royal College studying uh, with that, but Thank you for that excellent and succinct overview of the sad disease of aortic stenosis. So let's talk about this study. So you mentioned that historically it's really either been surgery or palliation, effectively, or medical management of severe aortic stenosis. As probably most people are aware now, these transcatheter interventions are rapidly being taken up in practice. There have been like a ton of these studies, sort of, I guess, long-term outcomes or studies have come out in various journals over the last couple of months. So which is the one that you want to talk about? 
So I want to talk about a study that was just published in March of this year in The Lancet, and that's the Partner One study. Um, it was actually a paired uh, publication. So uh, in one of the publications, uh, the authors report that uh, transcatheter aortic valve replacement, or TAVR, it's also commonly known in Canada as TAVI, as you were saying, so that's transcatheter aortic valve implantation. Just because it's easier to say Tavi than Taver. Exactly. It's it's a lot more Canadian. It's Ah. like saying a boot. Okay. But anyway, um, in the first study, they found that uh, Tavi can be considered an alternative to the traditional open heart surgery for patients who are at high surgical risk. Um, The second paper, which is the one that we're going to go into a bit more detail on today, um, these authors found that TAVI is more beneficial than standard treatment for patients who have inoperable aortic stenosis, so those that were traditionally felt to be non-surgical candidates. Okay, interesting. So tell us a little bit about the design of the uh, original study. Yeah, so the Partner One uh, trial, basically the one that we're going to talk about today, reports the five-year outcomes, um, and previous publications, really high-impact ones actually, um, published the one-, two-, and three-year outcomes, um, really mimic what we're going to talk about today. But what they did was they randomized about 350 patients to two arms, one group Uh, who were basically patients who were deemed unsuitable for surgery. They were randomized to transcatheter valve replacement, uh, the other to standard care, so expectant medical management. And what they found is that TAVI provided a survival benefit of almost 20% in these patients, so really a number needed to treat of only five. So that's an absolute risk reduction of 20%? That's an absolute risk reduction. So basically all-cause mortality was 70% in the TAVI group, and 90%, if you can believe it, in the standard treatment group. So obviously a very sick and frail population. Yeah, okay. So let's take a second to reflect on the five-year prognosis of someone with severe aortic stenosis, 90% die at five years. I guess that's not surprising. Tell me a little bit about these patients. What were their characteristics? Clearly they're old and frail. So old and frail is really the the best way to summarize it. So obviously a very multi-morbid population. And in fact, 34% of the deaths were non-cardiovascular. So a very sick population. Interesting. Um, So basically, these are the patients that us internists see all the time. Yes, it's our our daily uh, patients that we care and love for. Okay, so tell me what they found. I guess you kind of did. I did. I guess the other big finding is that they found a 30% absolute reduction in cardiovascular mortality as well. Okay. So this is really all about mortality. Do we know anything? So I guess the major risk with surgery is perioperative mortality and morbidity from complications of the procedure itself, but also stroke being the big you know, risk factor that we talk about. So what, is the, what was the effect on stroke in these patients? So really the risk for stroke is early on. So if you look at the 30-day outcomes after the initial TAVI, there was a statistically significantly increased risk of stroke in those that received the procedure, but this actually levels out after the initial procedure. So at five years, it, it really, there's no difference. And even at one, two, and three years, there's no difference either. Okay. What about quality of life, Janice? Did they talk at all about this? 
I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually a really important point that I took away from this, and that's in this very sick population, although obviously it's important to look at all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality, at the end of the day we have to start focusing more on patient-centered outcomes. And so it really is reassuring to know that of the 49, so only 49 survivors who underwent the procedure, 86% had a pretty good functional class. Uh, functional status, so an NYHA class of one or two, so pretty good. So shortness of breath is an important outcome, no doubt, but did they get any more sophisticated measures of quality of life, things like function or general well-being? Um, not to my understanding. I think the big one that is mentioned in the paper, as well as um, the associated commentary with it, is looking at NYHA functional class. Okay. All right. I guess it is a functional class, but it's really about shortness of breath. Um, so Janice, can you talk about how the valves were functioning at five years? Uh, one of the, I wouldn't say criticisms, but one of the commentaries that go along with this partner one trial is that um, it was five years ago. So really, valves have evolved since then. They've undergone many iterations and revisions and improvements apparently since then. And so there have been some more recent studies looking at modern valves. For example, there is a cohort study published in JAMA at the same time as this Lancet paper, and it looked at a, a big administrative uh, data set in the States, over 12,000 patients, and looked at the natural history of patients' real world who underwent a TAVI. And at one year, what they found was that the overall mortality was around 23%, and the one-year stroke rate was 4%. And so just important numbers to keep in mind when counseling patients on this procedure. Why don't you wrap up and tell us the major findings and then also tell us a little bit about how we should take data from these studies to counsel our patients. What I took away from this study is that TAVI really is a viable option for patients who are traditionally felt to be non-surgical candidates with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis. And in a select population of patients who are felt to survive this, that they really will end up with a pretty good quality of life afterwards. And as you alluded to, ultimately, it's really important to engage the patient, their family members, their loved ones, in making sure that this procedure is appropriate for them. And utilizing data such as the one that we mentioned from that JAMA study um, is important in these discussions. And so remind us those statistics for the one year. Yeah, so at one year using newer uh, valve replacements, the overall mortality is around 23%, and the stroke rate is 4%. You know, super high five-year mortality rates in this population, which is, I guess, not surprising. But what was the, just so we can counsel our patients, what was the one-year uh, mortality difference in the Partner 1 study? Because that seems to me to be a little bit more relevant to my patients when I'm talking to them. Yeah, so at one year, uh, the rate of death, so all-cause mortality for those who underwent the aortic valve replacement was about 30%. Those who did not was 50%. So again, an absolute risk reduction of 20% with a number needed to treat of five. And so obviously we see that about one in two patients who do not undergo TAVI will die by one year. Okay. Um, and so I think that is very useful, and I will use th that information when speaking to patients about this. So I think my major takeaway point is that even patients who are unfit for surgery, so very frail and sick patients, could potentially benefit from TAVI. And so I think, you know, I may be a little bit more aggressive 
about referring them for an opinion. Oh, for sure. That's my takeaway point too, that there's, there's no harm in at least asking for a cardiology opinion. Okay. Thanks so much, Janice. So let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about a historical study that's looking at the interaction between the sugar industry and the effect of industry lobbying and sort of machinations on national research agendas. This was a, a study that was published in PLOS Medicine. Well, that's really a journal we don't talk about often here on the rounds table, um, and also harkens back to a time of Mad Men, which is all the rage right now, but something we don't talk about often. So tell me, why did they even do this study? Yeah, so we're going a little bit outside of our comfort zone here, um, but hopefully this paper will hit the sweet spot. Huh? Huh? Yeah. All right. Okay, so um, why did they do this study? They did this study because... The sort of background subtext of this study is despite overwhelming consensus that sugars have a causal role in causing tooth decay and various recommendations by expert committees, there have not been quantitative targets to r suggest restricting sugar intake in order to control dental cavities or dental caries as they're called. So that's, that's a really interesting question that they came up with. How did they end up looking at this or analyzing this question. So these authors studied sugar industry documents to examine the interactions of the sugar industry with the National Institute of Dental Research, which is one of the was one of the divisions of the NIH. And they looked at it during a critical time for dental health, which was from 1966 to 1971. And this was a critical period because there was a plan to launch the National Caries Program, Cary being cavity. So from now on, I'm going to say Caries. Um, the National Caries Program that had a very aspirational goal of completely eradicating dental caries within a decade. So I, I have to say just sort of even the notion of eradicating dental caries is like revolutionary to me growing up in a generation of like very well- uh, a cavitied and fillinged youth such as myself. Exactly, and commercials of, you know, nine and ten dentists recommending a certain brand of toothpaste. Yeah, like I can't even really imagine uh, that people were thinking about completely eradicating dental caries. So what did these researchers do? They studied internal documents from a sugar industry research organization, and this went through various names, but effectively, this was an international research organization that was a trade organization that represented more than 30 international members with economic interests in the cane and beet sugar industry, including companies like Coca-Cola. So they found documents in an inventory of the papers of Professor Roger Adams, who was a professor of organic chemistry at the University of Illinois, because he was on the research organization scientific advisory board, the Sugar Research Organization scientific advisory board. They also then searched for additional materials that they could uh, locate through uh, other libra library catalogs, including things like annual, annual reports, symposium proceedings, and reviews of research. The, the authors basically assembled the documents into a narrative case study. So the background to all of this 
is that in 1966, the National Institute of Dental Research submitted a report with this aspirational vision of eliminating, eliminating dental caries. And they were specifically focused on a single pathogen, which was felt to be critical in causing dental caries, and that was Streptococcus mutans. Now, this is kind of interesting, and I didn't know about this before I read this paper, is that sucrose was targeted as a major culprit because sucrose, more than other sugars, caused strep mutans to become particularly adherent in the plaque on the surface of teeth. And so the 1967 National Institute of Dental Research report highlighted three main research priorities. So one was to reduce the virulence of bacteria once exposed to sugars. The second was to deliver fluoride to the population, which is known to protect against cavities. And the third was to promote dietary modification to limit sucrose intake. The last priority was seen as very dangerous by the sugar industry. Obviously. Obviously. And so the industry attitudes at that time, here's what we know. We know that at least as early as 1950, the Sugar Research Organization was very aware that their products damaged teeth. Or to put it a little bit more colloquially, one of the professors uh, and leading researchers at the time, Professor Bertram Cohen, said, Why should people be denied pleasure? It would obviously be far better to eliminate the harmful effects of sugar than to try to eliminate sugar itself. You know, as a lover of, of sweet things, I can be sympathetic to that worldview. It, it really sounds like it mirrors our current dialogue of harm reduction. Obviously, it's, you know, there are other things that cause dental caries. And so, you know, it's not purely about sugar, but, but that's exactly what they were looking at. And their harm reduction strategies actually looked at two kinds of therapies. One was including sort of enzymes in food products that would help prevent strep mutans from becoming totally adherent. These were called like dextranases. And believe it or not, there was even research looking into a vaccine against tooth decay. Oh my gosh, that is that is something that I had never considered before. Yeah, right. So, you know, unfortunately, by like the early 1960s, there was some pretty strong evidence to suggest that neither of those strategies was going to be sufficient to prevent tooth decay. But... The sugar industry made a deliberate effort to fund research in this direction. For example, they created a lab to permit the study of monkeys, specifically looking to develop the vaccine and develop other therapies against strep mutans. And they did this in a deliberate attempt to divert attention away from dietary modification. I'm curious to know, where did the story go from here? It's now like 1969. The National Institutes of Dental Research has begun meeting, and they're discussing a program of research to back up this aspiration of eradicating ca cavities. So they create a task force to determine their research priorities. In parallel fashion, the Sugar Research Organization also convened a panel meeting with a task force to determine their research priorities. Basically, the entire membership of both task forces was almost exactly the same. So the same people that were sitting on the National Institutes of Drug of, of Dental Research Task Force to assign research priorities were also invited to be part of a panel meeting by the Sugar Research Organization to identify research priorities. Wow, talk about conflict of interest. Right. In another interesting and perhaps not so subtle move, 
the Sugar Research Organization moved their headquarters from New York to Bethesda, Maryland, which just happens to be right beside the National Institutes of Health. In 1969, the Sugar Research Organization submitted a report to the National Institutes of Dental Research outlining research priorities to prevent dental cavities. One year later, President Nixon now endorses the National Caries Program with the goal of eradicating dental caries. And in 1971, the National Caries Program released their own research priorities. Do you want to take a bet as to how similar the research priorities of the National Caries Program are to the research, the Sugar Research Organization's caries? I'm going to guess that they were pretty different. <laughs> so, with your tongue-in-cheek, Janice, um, a comparison, these authors conducted a comparison of the two research priority lists, and they found that 78% of the Sugar Research Organization 1969 report was directly incorporated into the 1971 priorities. Even more, I, I mean, I personally think this is shocking, 40% of the lines in the 1971 national research priorities were taken straight out of the research in the sugar industry's proposal. Oh my goodness. I guess they didn't have turnitin.com back then. Yeah, that's right. And interestingly, two key pieces were left out of this priority. So there was a lot of discussion about studying and ranking the karyogenicity or the cavity predisposing predisposing effects of various foods. So that was, you know, felt to be an important research priority. And despite much discussion about this, somehow that didn't find its way into the national research plan. Similarly, the role of dietary modification was seriously underemphasized. There was no quantitative target set. Uh, and so, you know, it was very clear that the national research priorities as laid out by um, public research agency was a huge win for the Sugar Research Organization. Wow, that is something you don't hear every day. Um, I guess the first big question I have is how does this really have an impact or how, does it, how is it meaningful for us in today's world and in particular uh, in terms of the dynamic between industry and public health? Yeah, so I think, you know, earlier you mentioned Mad Men, uh, and if only to remind us that it was a very different time uh, at that time. And so obviously, a lot, you know, we're much more cognizant of the role of industry in lobbying and affecting research priorities. And so, you know, tr transparency is much better now than it was at that time. Having said that, obviously, we still have a long ways to go before you know, we really have a truly transparent uh, research infrastructure that is fully at arm's length from industry. And I, I actually think that this is unique because it highlights the food industry in a way that I think we don't commonly think about it. The other, I think, really interesting parallel here is um, is with tobacco, right? Yeah, it really, it They really share very common themes in terms of the story between industry and ultimately the public health message afterwards. Yeah. And, you know, you could argue that having a cavity is not as bad as having lung cancer. Actually, I don't think you could really argue that. It's clear that having a cavity is not as bad as having lung cancer. And perhaps that's why, you know, this hasn't been a bigger item 
in in the media, and perhaps that's why there you know we haven't seen court cases. Uh, but it still speaks to one industry that has come under heavy scrutiny for its behavior, and another industry which has been left fairly unchecked. Why don't I wrap up and say that the major takeaway for this from this study was to tell a fascinating story about the relationship between the sugar industry and national research priorities in dental health. The sugar industry went so far as to cultivate direct relationships with research leadership to fund research that distracted from public health efforts, to move their headquarters close to the National Institutes of Health, and ultimately they heavily influenced the first research priorities published by the National Carriers Program, uh, even though this was largely unrecognized at the time. Can I just say that I really want to go brush my teeth right now? (laughs) I hope it's not from the fact that speaking with me leaves a bad taste in your mouth. No, not at all. It was just the candy I was eating before. Okay, why don't we move on to our good stuff segment. Janice, what caught your attention from the world of medicine this week? So what really caught my attention was a piece in the New York Times entitled Love, Death, and Spaghetti. And basically, it's a piece that follows a palliative care nurse as she looks after an older Italian gentleman near the end of life. Uh, The opening line grabbed my attention. It says, Teresa, you gonna sit, you gonna eat. And basically, it goes into the emotional connection that this Italian grandmother has between food, love, and survival, and really the connection between end of life and the concept of starving our loved ones to death sometimes. It, it really resonated for me because when I think of patients that we look after on the wards near the end of life, often families are conflicted because they want to express their love to their family members, and often that's through food. But when patients are either no longer hungry, don't have an appetite, are at high risk of aspiration, that this is maybe no longer the case. And really, the article talks about what are some alternatives. And I found it to be very relevant to my day-to-day, and I'd highly recommend it to everyone. Great. So what are some alternatives? There are a few things, um, one of which is moistening their lips. You know, sometimes we see at the bedside those pink little spongy lollipops. And um, apparently the sensation of having moist lips will help to alleviate some of that and also enables a family member to do something active in terms of demonstrating their love. Uh, The other thing is obviously just spending time with them and talking with them and doing other human interactions. Okay, thanks, Janice. That's a great, uh, great recommendation. So my good stuff is significantly less poignant. Uh, Did you know, Janice, that the South Glasgow University Hospital was just opened to patients a couple of weeks ago? So why is this remarkable? It's remarkable because the Scottish government has invested 850 million pounds into a brand new facility, which is the amalgamation of four hospitals. And if for no other reason than to look at some pictures of ultra-modern hospital design, you should go to our website and check this thing out. The rooms in this hospital look like floating cubes. There are 1,100 beds that nearly all have their own private room and a view of the city. The hospital uses robots to deliver linens via underground tunnels. It's so massive that during peak times, 
60 buses arrive per hour from the city to drop patients off and people off to this hospital. And despite this massive undertaking, there's a couple of things, as you might imagine, there are a couple of things, a couple of glitches along the way. So the first thing is that this is a 14 story star shaped building that has caused locals to dub it the Death Star, not the ideal moniker for a hospital. And this is my favorite part. People keep getting stuck in these futuristic elevators that they've installed in these hospitals. So the elevators have no buttons on the inside. So what you do is you push a button on the outside for what floor you want. But if you unwittingly enter into the elevator, expecting it to function like every other elevator in society, you could get whisked away to any destination in the hospital without knowing. And so patients and, and family members have reported being stuck in elevators for like 30 minutes at a time as they zoom around the hospital, not to the destination of their choice uh, because they failed to push the button. So the hospital has to engage in an education campaign and they have like videos and stuff to teach people how to use the elevators. I'm imagining the Jetsons gone haywire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I guess change comes with a little bit of growing pain. Uh, so that's the South Glasgow University Hospital. All right. Janice, it was a pleasure to chat with you as always, and I hope we can do it again soon. Look forward to it. I wish you many smooth elevator rides in the future. I wish you no cavities in the next five years. Thanks very much. See ya. See ya.